Home is a thing that says there's nowhere else to be but here. This moment right now is fulfillment. Nothing needs to change. You are at the destination, and you are always at the destination. I have arrived. I am home. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Well, what was that? What just happened? What are those sounds? Where do they come from? If you find them as beautiful as I do, why? What do they mean? How is it that they fill me with joy? Well, I have some tentative guesses and ideas, I suppose, like anyone would, but not really answers. And most of this recording will be devoted to presenting these ideas, but First, I want to be a bit contradictory and say that we can never actually have full or final answers to these questions. Perhaps this point was best and most famously made by Emily Dickinson, who, in a letter, wrote, If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me. I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? Can we articulate in language what makes a poem powerful? Or what makes a poem a poem? I think absolutely not. We know it when we encounter it. We feel it in our body. We feel thrilled and enraptured. We feel totally stunned. These are the only way I know it, Dickinson said. Is there any other way? So any speculation, any theory... All of the libraries that are full of books that have tried to answer these questions can never quite get to the heart of the mystery, which is why it's called a mystery. And yet it's a mystery that we perceive instantly and need no special training for. Poems are things that we perceive and love without being able to fully understand. I want to start with three quick stories here to help illustrate what I mean. Yesterday I was driving to work, and there's a section of campus that is quite idyllic kind of woodsy, and the leaves were golden and falling, and I turned this corner, and I saw three deer feeding on some fallen apples in this clearing. And they were quite close to the road, and so I stopped the car, and I stared at them, and for a moment they stared at me. Then they lowered their heads again and kept on chewing. That's the first story. The second is, years ago, before Claire and I had kids, we spent a few days in Paris, And one place we visited was Notre Dame Cathedral, and we were walking peacefully through it when suddenly we heard this angelic choir start to sing. We turned around and we saw a procession of white-robed figures holding candles walking up the length of the gallery there, up to the front, as they were celebrating some Catholic holiday. 
I can't remember the exact date or what holiday this was, but there Clara and I were, smelling the incense, seeing the light come through the rose window, catching particles of dust in the air, and hearing this choir in white. And lastly, not quite a story, an image, really. A few days ago, my daughter lost a tooth, and she's lost several teeth recently. So she has about four or five gaps in her smile. So the tooth came out, we cleaned her mouth, and I asked her to give me a big smile, and <laughs> there was almost more empty space than teeth, and my heart just melted. Why am I telling you these little stories, these little moments? Because in each of them I felt a kind of rapture. I was transfixed. I was haunted or mesmerized. And if I ask myself how was I mesmerized, or by what was I transfixed, I realize quite quickly that this can't quite be known or articulated. What happens to our minds and our bodies when we see the face of a person we love, or hear music beautifully sung? While people have tried to make theories of poetry, and art in general, of course, scholars write articles about poems trying to illuminate the patterns and structures that gives poems their power. And while much of this criticism and theorizing is absolutely pointless, the best of it does illuminate, but even the best of it can only illuminate the margins. For example, this rhyme has a certain effect that this other rhyme wouldn't have had, or this enjambment creates a momentary pause or play of syntax. These issues may be interesting and important to understand, but I contend that they still remain of only marginal interest. Poetry and art in general is as miraculous as turning water into wine. And we could say, actually, that it's as indefinably miraculous as water itself. Yes, we know that water is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Yes, we can say that stopping by woods on a snowy evening by Robert Frost is made of four quatrains with an A-A-B-A -A -A rhyming structure. I could tell you the compounds that make up my daughter's face. And I wouldn't say that this knowledge in any of these cases isn't worth having. It is worth having. But too often this kind of knowledge gets mistaken for, I think, it gets mistaken for the final explanation of the rapture of art, or the rapture of water, or of a face, the rapture of being alive. I often ask myself, what is at stake in making these definitions and labels and categories? and propping up our understanding of these categories with theories. If we read a poem and it thrills us and it gives us goosebumps, does it matter if it's a lyric poem or a narrative poem? Does it matter if we define lyric, as one scholar does, as, quote, a repeatable speech act, the lyric is performative and not constitutive, unquote? I mean, does this add anything to our appreciation or enjoyment of the work? People like me in academia and the students I teach... We've been primed by our culture and our families and our ancestors and, I don't know, our Protestant work ethic, perhaps, to think that we have things to learn about poetry. But do we? We think there is important knowledge to be gained about poetry. But is there? I've both written and read my fair share of criticism and scholarship, all of which has been useful in highlighting this detail or that moment. But all of that information sits outside of, is totally independent from, the rapture I experience when I read a poem. You might be thinking, yes, but enjoying poetry is not the same thing as understanding the mechanism. In a music theory class, for example, you could learn about scales and harmonies and suspended fifths and pentatonic scales and dissonant chords. Can't we do the same for poetry? Well, yes, certainly we could. People do. 
But I suppose I would have two responses to this. The first is, everyone already instantly loves music without any of this knowledge. And they know how to love music without this knowledge. But for some reason, when it comes to poetry, people think they can't get this enjoyment without this knowledge. But this is false. So I don't want to do anything that perpetuates this misunderstanding that in order to understand or experience the power of a poem, you need the footnotes, or you need the, the university class, or the scholarship. My second response would be, yes, but doesn't knowing these things make music more beautiful? I suspect it doesn't. There are certain pieces of music, for example by Bach, that if I listen to with my full attention and heart, make me cry. But I don't know anything about music theory. I don't know anything about suspended fifths, dissonant chords. I don't know what a pentatonic scale is. I don't know what makes harmony or disharmony. Don't know any of it. If I did, would my tears be more teary? You might think, well, but cer certainly if we want to produce music or poetry, we would need this information. But would we? Do we? There are rooms all over the campus on which I teach full of people who have this information. Does it suddenly make them Beethoven? Isn't the muse or luck or that special unnameable sauce still missing? You know, back in the Beatles' heyday, Paul McCartney didn't know how to read music, sheet music. Didn't know how to read music. So if we don't need this information to love a poem or a song, and we don't need this information to write poetry or music, what do we need it for? Is it possible that we don't need it? There are some who pursue theories and scholarship and devote their lives to scanning poems and saying, this is a spondy, this is a trochee, or the difference between a Pindaric ode and a Horatian ode is. But I propose that they pursue these for their own pleasures. What gives them pleasure is the theory of poetry. But this is not the same as poetry. You can love dance without knowing anything about theories of dance. So I just don't want to get our wires crossed here. Unlike music, most people think they need the theory and the footnotes and the scholarship to enjoy it. And it's become a kind of <laughs> perpetual battle cry of mine that they don't. This is a complete misapprehension. In the New Testament, Christ says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's a very famous story in Buddhist scripture, I think it's called the Flower Sermon, where the Buddha is sitting in front of an audience and he's teaching them. And his method of teaching is simply to hold up a flower and say nothing. He holds up a flower and he waits and he smiles. And the crowd is silent and he just waits. And suddenly near the back, there's a single monk, there's a single student, I forget his name, who suddenly smiles. And the Buddha sees his smile and smiles back in recognition that this student has got the lesson, has seen what there is to see. What is there to see? Something deep? Something under the flower? Something behind the flower? The true flowerness of the flower? No. Enlightenment is right on the surface. Everyone else in the crowd didn't know how to see the flower because they were looking for something else behind or under or beyond the flower. And the single monk smiled, suddenly realizing, oh, I see, he wants us to see the flower. 
He wants us to see the flower. Think about a child staring into a flower. You could tell the child all sorts of things about the chemical composition of that flower, or the genetics of that flower, or the atomic structure of that flower, or theories of color, the physics of light and shadow and shade. Would this enable the child to see more beauty than she already sees? I really don't think so. And I think the exact same situation happens in poetry. We come into this world already possessing all of the skills and knowledge we need. Think about Homer reciting poems around campfires, or ancient bards who would wander from village to village reciting their poems. Think about being a child and playing jump rope at recess, reciting those chants, the meaning of which you didn't necessarily know or didn't care about. You simply loved reciting them. Think about being a child in your mother's lap being read to. Do you need any education in narrative theory to improve your experience in that moment? I think your experience in that moment is as perfect as it needs to be, as perfect as it could ever be. Doesn't a child already know how to fully enjoy poetry, just as she already knows how to fully enjoy the beauty of a flower? In Song of Myself, Walt Whitman says, I cannot tell how my ankles bend, nor whence the cause of my faintest wish. It's a really wonderful moment. And if we can't tell how our ankles bend, <laughs> yes, we can describe the biology, the anatomy, but how is it happening? How could, if we can't describe that, how can we tell what a poem is? For a long time, I thought I was earning my paycheck trying to explain the inexplicable, why poems are beautiful and how they get made. But more and more, I've come to feel like this would be like asking a priest to explain where God comes from or how God got made. That's not really in the priest's job description, nor is it something that even philosophers or theologians have ever been able to explain with finality. The priest's job, as I see it, is just to stand at the front of the congregation, hold up the communion wafer, and say, look, a miracle, and then go home. This is very analogous to how I see my job as a teacher of poetry. The beauty and power that poetry conjures inside our bodies and souls is self-evident and beyond words. If we notice something about an enjambment or meter that one particular line of poetry is doing that is interesting or pleasurable, we could notice a different and equally great poem doing the exact opposite and achieving just as much beauty and power. So reducing poetry to a theory of any specific attribute, such as meter or line, or sound effects or formal structures, or devising lists that sometimes you see circulating on the internet, the 17 most important tropes in poetry, you know what I mean? This is about as helpful as experiencing the Notre Dame Cathedral through the study of mineralogy, simply because the cathedral is made of stones. Yes, the cathedral is made of stones. And yes, a poem is made up of lines or words. So it's not like a mineralogical study of a cathedral would tell us nothing. But whatever it tells us would have little to do with the purpose of a cathedral or the experience of being in one, or the experience and meaning of a human face. Cathedrals and faces are also made up of atoms, and so are poems. But that doesn't mean that knowing more about particle physics will help us love poetry more. We have to find the right focal distance, and I think the right focal distance is the poem as an entire coherent object.
The same architectural metaphor was actually used by Samuel Johnson in the in his preface to Shakespeare. Um, he said that uh, people who reduce poetry or any art form to this or that aspect or part or technique will succeed, quote, like the pedant in Hierocles, who, when he offered his house to sale, carried a brick in his pocket as a specimen. And Goethe has a similar idea. In Eckermann's Conversations with Goethe, we have Goethe saying, How can one say Mozart has composed Don Juan? Composition, as if it were a piece of cake or biscuit, which had been stirred together out of eggs, flour, and sugar. It is a spiritual creation, in which the details as well as the whole are pervaded by one spirit, and by the breath of one life. So poems are irreducible to their parts, and their power relies not only in them, but in the relationship between them and their readers. So there's a very complex web of interrelations here that make up for the power and beauty of a poem. The line is not a helpful unit through which to understand or appreciate poetry. Sometimes a line is a word. Sometimes a line is many words. Sometimes poems don't have lines at all. Sometimes we experience poems that do have lines without noticing that they have lines because the poem is being read to us, so we're unaware completely that they have lines. A something that can be literally anything isn't a helpful category. Sometimes the most illuminating unit of a poem is the word. You know, there are moments in, for example, Home Burial by Robert Frost where he uses words like it or my that absolutely send shivers down my spine. But are these words good words, good poetic words? No, they're neutral. Everything depends on context. So we could talk about alliteration and assonance and metrical substitutions. And like I say, this would be interesting. It's information that I wouldn't want to banish from the world, but I wouldn't want to confuse information like that with, quote-unquote, the final answers. I love Benedetto Croce, especially his uh, essays on Dante. On this topic, he writes, Consequently, the question as to whether art is a physical fact should rationally assume another meaning, namely, whether art may be construed physically. This is certainly possible, and we actually do so whenever, on diverting our attention from the sense of a poem, or in giving up its enjoyment, we begin, say, to count the words of which the poem is composed, and divide them into syllables and letters. Or whenever, on diverting our attention from the aesthetic effect of a statue, we measure it and weigh it. To do so is, no doubt, of the greatest utility to packers of statues. As to count words is useful to printers who have to compose pages of poetry but it is utterly useless to the contemplator or student of art to whom it is not useful or permissible to divert his attention from his proper object. Croce goes on to argue that good readers, quote, should not open their mouths, but go into ecstasy about art and ruminate its joys in silence. Thus their faces spontaneously expressive of rapture, their outstretched arms expressive of wonder, or their hands joined together in a prayer of thanksgiving for the joy experienced. These should tell the whole story. The historicists, for their part, could of course speak, speak of codices, corrections, chronological and topical data, political events, biographical incidents, courses of the work, idiom, syntax, meter, but never of art. They are at art's service, but as pure men of learning they cannot raise their eyes to gaze at its face. So that's the end of Croce. I think he's really onto something here. I mean, it's true to say that the poem is words. If you swept away the words of the poem, 
there wouldn't be remaining hiding underneath the words the poetry. The word, the poetry is the words, but it's also not. All of this is just outside of our grasp. You know, we're, we're not standing above art, in control of it, in possession of perfect knowledge of its sources and effects. We're inside of it, we're underneath it, we're overwhelmed by it, we're possessed by it. It moves in us and through us. We have no vantage point, we, we, we have no perch above it or beyond it with which to fully explain it. Could we presume, for example, to complete the following sentence? The Divine Comedy by Dante is... I mean, definitionally speaking. How would we define this? Is it a series of squiggles made of ink on a page? Is it a set of waves of sound that enter the ear? Is it a set of ideas or theological arguments that have been given form in the Italian language? It's not sufficient to say it's a collection of words, since so is a phone book. It's not sufficient to say it's a set of theological arguments, since so is Augustine, or philosophical arguments, since so is Aristotle. We could maybe get closer if we define the Divine Comedy as the adventures of a soul, or the life of a particular mind. (laughs) I like these definitions more than any I've proposed so far, But these are quite vaporous and vague. What is a life? What is a mind? What is a soul? These are equally unsatisfactory in many ways. I love this moment in Montaigne. When he was asked to explain why he and his friend Etienne de la Boite had such a close relationship, Montaigne could only say, because it was he, because it was I. That's it. It wasn't because he was kind, it wasn't because he was funny, it wasn't because he was honest. I mean, all of those things, yeah, they're included in the package of he, of heness. But this, the, our relationship also depends on the package of me, minus. I love Wordsworth, for example, meaning that I love all of Wordsworth, the bad bits too, because they're part of the whole, and the whole is irreducible. My son was born six weeks early, and this may or may not have been one of the causes for quite a severe speech delay that he had. He didn't start talking until He was about three and a half, not even words like mom and dad. So because I'm kind of, you know, a lunatic and a poetry lover and I wanted him surrounded with language, I would always recite poems to him out loud. Just, you know, pushing him in the stroller while cooking in the kitchen. And one poem in particular that he learned to love. I mean, it's interesting already that he he had preferences. (laughs) He wasn't able to use speech, but some of these sound waves moving through the air he liked more than others. And one he liked most of all was Tiger, the Tiger by William Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? You know the poem. So I would recite this poem a lot for him, and he was just entranced by it. And I would recite it so much that eventually I had it memorized, and eventually he could kind of mumble his way through it. Even though in normal conversation he couldn't put more than two words together, he could kind of um, stumble his way through the, through the whole poem, mumbling some of the longer, harder passages. He had no idea what the word, for example, symmetry meant. Or dare. Let alone, I mean, he knew what tiger was, probably. Um, let alone could he have any conception of the theological arguments that the poem is making, the historical context. The poem's full incantatory power and hypnotic beauty 
was accessible to a pre-literate child. This was Socrates' Mino example in action for me. We come into this world already being able to love poetry. We come into this world already possessing every skill we need to access the full transcendent power and beauty of sublime poetry. Let's not second-guess ourselves or overcomplicate things by letting theories or definitions or lists or techniques get in the way. Art is simply perceived, and that is the only way that it could be said to be understood. As I was saying before, we can't understand it from above or from outside. Art is simply perceived, and that is the only way that it can be said to be understood. The experience of art can't be paraphrased, and art doesn't ask us to paraphrase it. It only asks to be perceived. I love what Tarkovsky, the film director, the Russian film director, says in an interview. He says, my pictures, my films, do not claim to require any deciphering. This is an especially powerful comment if you know his films, which are very enigmatic. They appear to be quite symbolic, surreal. They seem to cry out for interpretation. But they're just experiences. And a child can access their full power just as much as any film scholar. My pictures do not claim to require any deciphering. As a PhD student, I read dozens and dozens of authors, theorists, philosophers, who attempted to define poetry or prescribe certain principles of composition. And I was hungry to glean all manner, any manner, of pragmatic suggestions that would improve the quality of my own poems. And, you know, I found stuff like this. This is Eudora Welty, the great short story writer. She says, quote, There is no explanation outside fiction for what the writer is learning to do. This is W.H. Auden's summation of what poetry should be and do. Quote, there is only one thing that all poetry must do. It must praise all it can for being and for happening. Ford Maddox Ford wrote, The main thing is the genuine love and the faithful rendering of the received impression. The actual language, the vernacular employed, is a secondary matter. Unquote. Here's Wordsworth, you know, one of my heroes. He writes, The end of poetry, the purpose of poetry, is to produce excitement in coexistence with an overbalance of pleasure. Martin Heidegger says language is the temple of being. Percy Bysshe Shelley says poetry is a mirror which makes beautiful that which is distorted. A poet is a nightingale who sits in darkness and sings to cheer its own solitude with sweet sounds. Poetry is a sword of lightning, ever unsheathed, which consumes the scabbard that would contain it. Now, I love these. I find these beautiful and inspiring and very wise. But notice how symbolic or metaphoric or emotional they are. They're by no means scientific. They're very vague and general and unspecific. Okay, poetry is a mirror that makes beautiful that which is distorted, but what should I put in my poem, Mr. Shelley? How do I write better essays or novels, Ford Maddox Ford? What are the mandatory ingredients of great fiction? Even our best practitioners in explaining their art are reduced to more art, more metaphors, more similes, more images, and to attitudes like love and praise and awe. 
Also, as a PhD student, I spent a lot of time carefully reading the collected works of these poets themselves, poets I love, and it taught me a lot of valuable lessons. Just go through the collected works of Wordsworth, or Whitman, or Dickinson, or Keats, or Frost, or literally any of our greatest poets, and you will see masterpieces, yes, but these masterpieces will be embedded like diamonds in a sediment of crud. It's one thing we don't notice when we read masterpieces in anthologies, because in an anthology it's all diamonds. It's just constant, non-stop glitter. But read Wordsworth front to back, read Frost front to back, and you'll see that the, the great and lasting and sublime successes are actually the exception, not the rule. They're in the minority, not the majority. There's this wonderful anthology of bad poetry called The Stuffed Owl, and it has poems in it by most of the poets I've just mentioned. The fact that the same poet can write like a genius occasionally, but mostly not, and, you know, the mostly not isn't in their youth. Most of the, often the worst poetry they write is in their quote-unquote mature phases. This has proved to me that even great poets don't know how exactly to write poetry. Let me repeat that. It's quite an audacious, semi-heretical thing to say, I suppose. John Keats didn't know how to write a great poem. I'm 100% certain that this is true. Robert Frost didn't know how to write a great poem. I'm 100% certain this is true. Why am I saying this? Well, if Keats knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote Two Autumn, then every poem of his would be as good as Two Autumn. But they're not. Very, very few of them are, which means that he relied on trial and error or luck as much as the rest of us. Composing great poetry was not something he could do on command. When it worked, it worked. When it didn't, it didn't. Even if he was trying the same techniques each time. The very fact that we use the word muse and have any of the mythology surrounding this concept of the muse is proof that, that poets have not only not known how they do what they do, but they've never claimed to know either. Nor, will I add, has any philosopher or scientist or theologian or literary scholar or critic. If Keats had no predictable answer to the question, how can I write a great poem? And if no piece of literary criticism on Two Autumn can define for us what rapture is and why these words in this order induce it, then we can relax. We can kind of unclench our need to have final, comprehensive, universal answers. Every definition of poetry is makeshift. For a couple of years, I lived in Russia, and this one time I was having this conversation with a man who had never met a Canadian. So I introduced myself. I said, well, where are you from? I said, I'm from Canada. He said, he'd met a lot of Americans before, and for a Russian, the American creature, I suppose, looms rather large in their consciousness. He wanted to know what a Canadian is in kind of con contrast to an American. So he asked me, what makes a Canadian different from an American? And I said, well, um, sorry to think, that's a good question. Uh, well, let's see, we like hockey a lot more than Americans do, I said. He said, oh, do you play hockey? I said, well, actually, no, I don't. I don't even really like hockey. I don't even watch it. And then I said, 
Um, well, we're more, I, I suppose Canadians are more liberal than Americans. He said, are you a liberal? I said, mm, well, that's kind of complicated too, because I suppose, <laughs> you know, back then, even still today, my political leanings are rather a mixed bag. I said, um, well, we're more European influenced. We have this, this French culture, Quebec, you know, it's kind of in many ways a part of Europe more than it is a part of North America. He said, do you speak French? I said, no, <laughs> actually, I don't speak French. I said, um, Americans have this gun culture that Canada doesn't have. And he said, oh, you don't like guns? And I had to admit, well, actually, I'm from rural Canada. So, you know, guns for a lot of my family and friends have been kind of an important tool. And I can't remember exactly how this conversation ended, but he must have been very disappointed with a Canadian who didn't speak French, didn't like hockey, wasn't always voting liberal, and wasn't exactly anti-gun. He got no answers to his question that day, what is a Canadian? Well, the reasons for this are obvious. The population of Canada is something like 37-ish million, I think. There are 37 ways of being a Canadian. Similarly, each poem is that poem and no other, and cannot be explained or reduced to any system or generality or theory. We do our best. You know, we do our best. We read things and they give us goosebumps. We may never know why exactly, but can't we get closer to answers? What are these rules of thumb? I'm teaching a poetry class this semester, and recently a really great and cool thing happened. I took this question to them and asked them, what is this thing that we call poetry? I didn't lay any of this baggage on the table since I wanted their thoughts as uninfluenced by mine as possible. But to help them with this question, I kind of read them a few poems that run the gamut, traditional rhyming poems, poems that are rather undefinable, some prose poems. I read them some poetic paragraphs out of novels, and I simply asked them to be called a poem. What does a text need to have or do? And they thought about it for a while. Uh, images, sound, rhyme. One, none of these things seem definitive to me. A poem cannot have rhyme and be a poem. A literary text can have images and cool sound effects and be quite obviously a piece of prose novel. One student raised his hand and said, well, when I read prose, I'm more patient because I know that its effects will take longer to unfold. But then he said, when I read a poem, I feel like I can demand more or less constant surprises and pleasures and beauties. And something clicked in the back of my brain. I thought, mm, this is this is very interesting to me. In response to that comment, another student raised her hand and said, she used the ingenious comparison of clothes in a washing machine. You know, in our house, we have one of those front loaders, so you can kind of imagine that. You can watch the clothes spin in a circle. So to paraphrase, her point was, poetry is language that does that. It has nowhere to go in particular. Now again, let me say that any definition is makeshift. Even these ones that pleased me a lot will be partial and not cover every type of poem. The Odyssey by Homer, for example, is clearly linear and has, has places to go. So we can only ever get a rule of thumb or an approximation. But as an approximation, I liked these answers a lot. These seemed very wise and illuminating to me. Unlike prose, which is usually, again, there's that word, usually linear, and develops and takes us places and serves a larger architecture, often plot, poetry in contest annihilates time and space. Prose wants to move us somewhere. Poetry says, what's wrong with right now?
What's wrong with right now? There's nothing else to seek. Poetry is language that has nowhere to go. It's the linguistic art that emphasizes the here and the now instead of the there and the then. Uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti said, a sonnet is a moment's monument. But I would extend that definition of a sonnet to most poetry. A moment's monument. Poetry is literature that says now is all there is. So you might as well take a big bite out of it. Think of two autumn. Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them. Autumn has its music too, right? He says, and now with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Now. Now things might be dying. Now might be the end of the year. Now might even suck a lot. But it's all there is. So take a big bite out of it. There is no future. There's nothing to get. There's nowhere to be but here. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater, beside the white chickens. If you're a visual learner, you can imagine, again, this is reductive, but I think, you know, somewhat helpful. Prose is a, an arrow. Poetry is a circle. So a prose poem would still have that circling quality to it. I'm nowhere to go, nowhere to be, other than here. I'm just walking around, even if it's not written in lines and has no rhyme. These answers my students gave me really helped me put into words why I love poetry. Because a poem is a thing that says there's nowhere else to be but here. This moment right now is fulfillment. Nothing needs to change. You are at the destination, and you are always at the destination. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen Buddhist author, teacher, master, meditator, has these wonderful instructions for walking meditation. When you set your left foot down, you say, I have arrived. When you set your other foot down, you say, I am home. I have arrived. I am home. This is potentially true of every single moment of our lives. We live our lives, as Samuel Johnson says, not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope. And the result of this can be exasperating and pain-inducing. I just need to get to the next thing. This class is boring. I can't wait till I get to lunch. This lunch was kind of unfulfilling. Dinner will be better. Well, once I go home from work, then that's where I really can be fulfilled. Well, home kind of sucks because the kids are loud and it's messy. So what will really be good is that vacation that we're planning. We're never fulfilled. We're never in the moment. This is why I love poetry, because it says, Stop. Be here now. There's nowhere else to go. This isn't just something that poetry in the English tradition or even the Western tradition is emphasized. I like to corroborate any idea or suspicion or hypothesis I have about poetry by going outside of our tradition. There's this great anthology of African poetry that I've been reading recently. Much of it is oral, so it doesn't have named authors, but from the, so they just kind of transcribed throughout the centuries, and they're given tribal designations. So from the Mahi tribe, here's a poem. Listen to my sorrow. Listen to my lament. The bat was struck by misfortune. Its head is hanging low. I too was struck by misfortune. My arms are hanging limp. The monkey was struck by misfortune. His brothers cease their play. The lake is full of water. 
the lake cannot move away. The room where we are drinking, the room has become dark. The forest has burst into flames. The hyena looks for its mother. The antelope flees the forest. The antelope's life is sad. Listen to my sorrow. Listen to my lament. That's the whole poem. Be here now. Don't try to change the sorrow into joy. Don't try to solve the lament. This moment is one of lamentation. Let's be in it. We have nowhere else to go but right here. There's a passage in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's letters in which he writes this. The common end of all narrative, nay of all poems, is to convert a series into a whole, to make those events which in real or imagined history move in a straight line assume to our understandings a circular motion. The snake with its tail in its mouth. Doubtless to, to his eye, which alone corresponds all past and all future in one eternal present, what to our short sight appears straight is but a part of the great cycle. Just as the calm sea to us appears level, though it be indeed only a part of the globe. I love this passage because it suggests that the power and purpose of poetry is to obliterate the sensation of linear time, or to find a kind of perspective outside of time, where time is not passing anymore, to turn the line into a circle, or the series into a whole, the snake with the tail in its mouth, the clothes tumbling around and around in a dryer, a state in which to find a state in which loss, permanence, transformation are all aspects of the same state, as Percy Bishelli says, the one remains, the many change and pass. Poetry says each moment is the one. My wife and I took a trip recently to southern Utah, and there's this section in the hills down there where you can see some petroglyphs made by a group of people called the Fremont Indians. These people lived there many, many centuries ago, and they carved spirals into the rock. And there are these plaques that kind of explain some of the symbolism of the petroglyphs, and we were told that the image of the spiral was their image for migration. I loved this a lot. We might think that migration means moving from A to B, change, development, improvement, progress. But this idea of the spiral is much wiser. The path of our life is circular. Each poem says, wherever you go, there you are. There is only now, there is only now. I have arrived, I am home. I think most poems, in a way, enact this sense of timelessness or stasis. Some poems do it in implicitly, some do it explicitly. Here's a poem I love that does it. The Lake Isle of Innisfree by William Butler Yeats. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree. And a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honeybee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the vales of the morning to where the crickets sing. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavements gray, 
I hear it in the deep heart's core. You might think, this poem isn't an example of this. He's craving. He's striving. He doesn't want what's here and now. He wants what's there and then. But one of the great ironies of this poem is that he, he says, I will arise twice. I will arise and go. But he never does. He stays where he is. This suggests to me that the present moment, with all of its thoughts, is just as good. I can imagine the crickets. I can see the glimmer and the purple glow. What's wrong with right now? I can have the lake I live in is free in me at any moment. Well, what can be taught? Okay, Mr. Poetry Teacher. If there are no general rules, and even rules of thumb are slippery, what can be taught? Well, I'm not sure if how to write a poem can be taught, but maybe how to write poetry can be taught. What I mean by this is, I can't tell you or myself, I, I mean, I would love to know how to write a poem, I can't tell anyone, including myself, what to put on any particular page, since there are no rules, and what one poem needs, the other poem will be destroyed by. But I, I do think there are habits or attitudes of mind and heart that, if cultivated, might get better poetry flowing out of us. The first would be to um, channel Oscar Wilde, who said, Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Be present in your experiences, whatever they are and know that they are shaping you. Emerson writes, to believe your own thought, to believe what is true for you, in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense. So trust yourself, but also know that your whole life has been, in a way, leading up to what only you can contribute to the world. On which day did Shakespeare write Hamlet? Well, one answer to the question is, every day he was alive. All of his failures were dress rehearsals for success. All of his, the sights and sounds of his childhood went into that poem. Feeding the swans of Stratford was him drafting King Lear. I love what Whitman says in his preface to Leaves of Grass. He says, this is what you should do. He's talking to aspiring poets. This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others, hate tyrants, argue not concerning God, have patience and indulgence toward the people, take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any man or number of men, go freely with powerful uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families, read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life, re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book, dismiss whatever insults your own soul and your very flesh shall be a great poem, and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face, and between the lashes of your eyes, and in every motion and joint of your body. I suppose my second um, attitude that I would point to is aim for greatness. Shakespeare became Shakespeare because he aimed at greatness. He wanted to write like Marlowe, or Chaucer, or the Greek playwrights. No greatness is ever achieved accidentally, so if you want to write a great poem, this has to be your aim. Again, in Self-Reliance, Emerson writes this, Great men have always done so, had these aspirations, and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, 
and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and are not minors and invalids in a protected corner, not cowards fleeing before a revolution, but guides, redeemers, and benefactors, obeying the almighty effort and advancing on chaos in the dark. So the moment we say we can't do it because we're not Dickinson or Shakespeare is the moment we've begun to fail. We resign ourselves to the kids' table. The universe doesn't resign us to the kids' table. We do it to ourselves. The third might be to abandon the search for techne. Techne, this Greek word, um, skill or craft or technique. If you read The Republic by Plato or this dialogue Ion in particular, you see Plato having a lot of fun with the fact that poets and, you know, who he calls rhapsodes, reciters of poems, have no idea where poetry comes from or how it's made. So don't be so concerned with the right way to rhyme or in jam or the necessary ingredients of a great line. There's no such techne. Number four, I would say maybe in our list of attitudes that I would encourage any aspiring poet to try to cultivate, I would say give your whole self to what you create and what you receive. This is very difficult. John Ruskin, the Victorian art critic in The Stones of Venice near the end, he says, quote, We have just seen that all great art is the work of the whole living creature, body and soul, and chiefly of the soul. But it is not only the work of the whole creature, it likewise addresses the whole creature. That in which the perfect being speaks must also have the perfect being to listen. I am not to spend my utmost spirit and give all my strength and life to my work while you, spectator or hearer, will give me only the attention of half your soul. You must be all mine as I am all yours. He goes on to say this, The painter is not to cast the entire treasure of his human nature into his labor, merely to please a part of the beholder, not merely to delight his senses, not, not merely to amuse his fancy, not merely to beguile him into emotion, not merely to lead him into thought, but to do all this. Senses, fancy, feeling, reason, the whole of the beholding spirit must be stilled in attention or stirred with delight, else the laboring spirit has not done its work well, so that one of the main functions of art is in its service to man is to arouse the imagination from its palsy like the angel troubling the Bethesda pool. The art which does not do this is false to its duty and degraded in its nature. It is not enough that it be well imagined. It must task the beholder also to imagine well. So when you sit down to read a poem, give it your whole soul, your whole being, your whole attention. Memorize it. Reread it. Live with it. Take it into your life. Try to speak it out loud as if it was you experiencing the emotions and experiences that the poet describes. I'll conclude this little list with a number five here, I suppose it would be the, to cultivate the habit of a lot of trial and error. A lot of trial and error. Again, I get this from Emerson. You don't have just one chance. You have thousands and thousands of chances. Go back and read the collected works of any poet you love, and you see them mostly failing. So be okay with that. Those failures are actually successes in disguise, or they're necessary precursors, or they're part of the runway. I love this quote by Dean Young. He says, I tell my students not to worry about originality, just to try to copy the manners and musics of the various, the more various the better, poetries you love. Your originality will come for your, from your inability to copy well. Your genius is your error. Well, <clears throat> I've rambled long enough, probably. How should I conclude this strange, rambling, non-manifesto, pointless harangue? 
Uh, I would like to end it with two quotes here. The first is from Joseph Campbell. And though the quote is not about poetry specifically, it's perhaps the best answer I know of to the question, why is poetry valuable? Joseph Campbell writes this, we're not seeking a meaning to life, but an experience of the rapture of being alive. This is so great. What we're seeking is the experience of the rapture of being alive. Undeniably, other art forms do this, but there is something about the compression of poetry. The fact that it's a hybrid art form that exists half on the page and half in the ear, and, you know, and neither in the eye or the ear alone. It exists truly in the fleshy tablets of the heart. That's poetry's true medium. And therefore not even music or film or novels or painting can evoke with quite as much power the absolute rapture of being alive, of being here now. Even doing something horribly mundane and annoying like washing the dishes. You didn't have to be born, and you won't always be washing the dishes. Think about being chronically ill in bed for months or years. What a blessing it would be to be able to stand up and scrub a plate. It would be rapturous. So the rapture of being alive isn't romantic bliss. It's not climbing Mount Everest. It's not roller coasters, you know? Scrubbing a dish. Poetry reminds us that the rapture of being alive can be found in washing the dishes. Slow down. Be. Live. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow. Or, this is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet, and so cold. It's another very famous poem by William Carlos Williams. This is just to say, plums are, I am, they are sweet. We don't have to be experiencing any of this, and yet we are. Here we are. My concluding quote, I snuck in another poem there. My concluding quote comes from God himself. (laughs) It's from that moment in the book of Exodus when Moses asks the burning bush, okay, I'll go to Egypt, but who should I tell them has sent me? And the voice from the bush says, I am that I am. (laughs) My favorite thing I've ever read, I am that I am. Why am I reminding you of this moment now? Because this is what all poems do. Indeed, all objects, indeed, all moments say this, I am that I am. Sneaking in one more chunk of poetry here at the very end, Gerard Manley Hopkins. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing in the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, What I do is me. For that, I came. So, the next time you feel the impulse to interpret a poem, or to change a moment of your life for a better moment of your life, or to get on with this lame hour and go to where you, the next hour where you think you'll really be fulfilled, try to unclench and resist this impulse. Raise the poem to your ear. Raise the moment to your ear. 
and hear it whisper to you, I am that I am. What I do is me. For that I came.